This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we always take a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, to uh, identify your sins in the privacy of your priesthood and in silent prayer to God the Father. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the unbeliever, the issue is faith in Christ. For the believer, the issue is Are you in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to advance in your spiritual life? So we'll take a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're gathered together this morning for the highest form of worship, which is to study Your Word. It is through the study of Your Word that the Holy Spirit is able to teach us. The Holy Spirit is able to build in us strength, understanding, a knowledge of the world as it is based on truth, and it is through that truth that You mature us in our spiritual life under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that we have the freedom to meet together as we do, freedom in this nation. We continue to pray for our president, for our civil leaders, as well as our military leaders, for troops on the ground in Iraq and in Afghanistan and other hot spots around the world. We pray that you would watch over them, keep them safe and secure. But above all, we pray for our leaders who design the strategy that they might have wisdom and the proper intelligence in order to make the right decisions. Father, we pray for us that we might not take lightly uh, what we are engaged in, that this issue of our spiritual instruction is vital. It is the most significant, the most important uh, aspect of our lives, for it not only has an impact on our own relationship to you in time and an impact on our nation, but it also has an impact on our uh, eternal life and our roles and responsibilities in the future. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning this morning, we're going to start a series on Book of Revelation. Now, there's always a few people who show up extra to study the Book of Revelation because everybody gets sort of stimulated with the study of prophecy. And that's fine. Prophecy is a great uh, study of approximately uh, a fifth of the scriptures are prophetic and were prophetic when they were given, and it is important to study uh, prophecy. I heard one pastor at a church who, in my opinion, should know better, made the comment that he would never teach the book of Revelation because that just brings out all the kooks and the weirdos. But that just shows the fact that there are some pastors who don't spend enough time studying uh, the Word. Today we're going to begin our study, as we've done in the past with uh, other series, with an overview. We're going to take a run through the book of Revelation. Now the reason we're doing this is to give you that bird's eye view of the whole book, 22 chapters. And as we get into the details, it's very easy at times to lose sight of where we are and to lose the forest for the trees. 
And especially in a book like Revelation, you can spend so much time looking at the details on the trees that you forget the overall perspective. So as we've done in Genesis and a couple of other series, I want to approach this with sort of a three-tiered lesson plan. We're going to have some lessons like today that are surveys or summaries. They're going to cover large chunks so that you can uh, put everything together. This gives you that that overall uh, big picture. Two weeks ago when I was in Moscow, I just felt overwhelmed when I uh, was driven in by the cab the first day. I felt completely lost. I'd been there 10 years ago, but I really didn't see any familiar landmarks so that I could orient myself to the basic layout of the city. And then after I got to my hotel room, I took out a map and I figured out where I was on the map and I was able to orient, okay, here's where Red Square is and here's where the train station was where I arrived 10 years ago. And suddenly everything began to come together and make sense. I thought I'd landed at the airport to the north. I'd landed at an airport in the south. So I was my, my mental image of where I was had, was all... Uh, out of kilter. Same thing happens when we get into the Word. You start reading something, and if you don't have an understanding of the big picture of what is being said, then you can start looking at two or three verses out of context and not understand their significance or import, and you end up being confused or, or, or distracted. And this happens frequently because people don't have the big picture. This is why I did a study a few years ago on an introduction to the Old Testament, 25 or 26 lessons to give you that bird's-eye overview of what the Old Testament is all about. So we're going to have overview sections plus detailed exegetical sections. Those will be labeled, uh, the, the overview sections are labeled A-level, the detail sections, the exegetical sections are B-level, and then there'll be some topical studies, and those will be labeled C-level. So if you get on the uh, look at the tape catalog or the listing online. That's the difference, and that's how we're, we're stacking things. Now, why should we study Revelation, aside from the fact that it's just another book in the Bible? Well, it's a special book in the Bible because it comes with a promise of blessing. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. There is an implied warning here. Jesus is coming at any moment. This is called the imminency, the doctrine of imminency, that Jesus can come back today, tomorrow, and the question is, are you ready? It's not just a matter of reading and hearing. That implies studying and understanding all of the details of the text, but also heeding, that is, putting into application the things that we learn from the study of the book of Revelation. This isn't just a matter of what's going to happen in the future, but obviously John, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, realizes that even though this is talking about events that may take place uh, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, or even in the first century, 2,000 years uh, later, it was still, uh, still had application for every believer right now. Not only does Revelation come with a promise of blessing, it also comes with a promise of a cursing. This is one of the reasons that there was some debate over its inclusion in the canon of Scripture at the very early, early stage. Most people included it in the canon, but some raised a little question because Revelation 22:19 reads, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Martin Luther wasn't sure about including Revelation in the canon because there's a curse associated with mishandling it, and that sort of uh, scared him off a little bit. So there is a promise of blessing for reading it, studying it, and heeding it, and a curse for mishandling it. So there is, obviously, the Holy Spirit states that this is a, a book of serious significance. The book as a whole, if we want an overall bird's eye view, is arranged according to the wording of Revelation 119. This gives us the internal structure of Revelation. The Lord Jesus Christ directs the Apostle John, Therefore write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Three elements. So we outline the book of Revelation according to these three uh, things. The things which you have seen 
That is, at the end of chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about what John has already seen and the things that are described in the first chapter of the, of the Revelation. Then he says, the things which are, that is, present tense, and that's Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This, these cover the seven letters to the seven churches. There are seven churches on the uh, western uh, edge of what is now modern Turkey, what was then the Roman province of Asia, and it is these seven churches that are addressed in Revelation 2 to 3. That is real-time information for uh, Christians throughout the present church age. In fact, the word church is used 19 times in chapters 1 through 3, and it isn't used again until chapter 19. That is one of the evidences that the church does not go through the period known as the tribulation, the seven-year period which comes uh, at the end of, of history just before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third division in the book of Revelation is chapters 4 through 22, the things which will take place after these things. So Revelation 1 covers the uh, initial events of the Lord Jesus Christ commissioning the Apostle John to write the uh, Revelation. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 covers the seven letters to the seven churches, which covers church age, uh, material church age doctrine, and then Revelation 4 through 22, which has not yet been fulfilled. I believe that Revelation is for the most part prophetic. There are, as we will see, three different ways that prophecy uh, that some of this prophecy has been interpreted in history. Some people think it's already been fulfilled, that all of this, the symbolism and the imagery in Revelation is simply uh, code words for events that took place prior to the fall of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And therefore, in their view, it had to have been written before 70 A.D., However, Revelation was not written until 95 A.D. after the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the fifth cycle of discipline on the nation Israel. That's called the preterist view. All this has already happened. Then there's a, another way in which prophecy is interpreted called historicism. And just think about these three views as past, present, and future. Past tense is preterist. That's all happened. Present tense is you can just sort of lay... Uh, the present church age over chapters 4 through 19 and figure out where we are. Are we in chapter 5? Are we in chapter 17? Where are we in the time frame here? And that is the approach of, of uh, people like Jehovah's Witnesses and some other groups that uh, 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 Seventh-day Adventists and others, um, many, many Christians, um, different denominational groups take a historicist view of Revelation 4 through 19. And then there's the futurist interpretation. That's the interpretation that we hold to. That is that these events in chapters from chapter 4 through chapter 22 are all in the future. They have not taken place yet. They will take place uh, after the rapture of the church. So let's begin with our run through Revelation to see how it is laid out. Chapter 1, we have the glorified Christ, the things which you have seen. Then in chapters 2 through 3, we have these seven churches of the church age, the things which are. Then the majority of the book deals with the future events, the things which shall take place. Here we're going to focus on the tribulation. In chapters 4 through 19 is a description of the events of the tribulation. And it goes back and forth. You have to understand the structure. John gives an overview. And then he comes then in the next couple of chapters, he'll come in and fill in the details. So he moves back and forth. It's not written in a step-by-step chronological approach like we're used to. He also shifts the scene. He moves from heaven to earth. So chapters 4 and 5 are in heaven. Then chapters, chapter 6 comes back to the earth, and you go through various stages. So you have to understand where the scene is taking place. Uh, chapter 19 describes the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the defeat of the Antichrist, the false prophet, 
and Satan and the establishment then of the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom promised in the Old Testament. This is covered in Revelation chapter 20. And then uh, that ends with the great white throne judgment. And then we have the eternal state described in the last two chapters, Revelation 21 to 22. So this lays out the outline, the overview, the main approach to the book of Revelation. So let's look at some of the details. It takes place in 95, approximately 95 A.D., when the Apostle John is exiled uh, by Domitian to the Isle of Patmos. It was one of the first... uh, more universal persecutions in the church. Now, the dating of the book of Revelation is an important issue, and we will look at that in in brief as we get into the study of the book. But this is given to the Apostle John. There have been a few other people who have uh, been candidates for the author of Revelation, but it is the Apostle John. It is the at this time he is the sole surviving disciple. There were 11 disciples from the day of Pentecost on, and then you added the Apostle Paul. By this time, all of the other apostles are are deceased. This is John, the brother of James. The two were called the sons of thunder. He was the youngest of the disciples and the closest to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who put his head upon Jesus' uh, chest at the Lord's uh, at the uh, Passover, the night before the Lord went to the cross, it was to John that Jesus gave the responsibility uh, for taking care of his mother. So John is the closest to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the one who is given this uh, unique insight into the future plans uh, on uh, in the history of mankind. We know that it took place at the Uh, towards the end of the first century, around 95 A.D., because of one particular quote by Irenaeus. There are many other evidences, but Irenaeus, who was a famous church father who wrote about uh, 170 A.D., stated, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist. See, even then they recognize you can't identify who the Antichrist is until because he won't be revealed until after the rapture. For if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. For that was seen no no very long time since, but almost in our day towards the end of Domitian's reign. So this helps us to identify the date as 95 A.D. This is one argument against the preterist interpretation. The preterists want to say that all of this took place uh, during the reign of Nero, and all of this is just simply, all the symbolism is simply codes, words for Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But if Revelation isn't written until 95 A.D., then it can't possibly fit their uh, scenario. And the reason I mention them, and we will study their positions in detail as we go through, is because this is becoming very popular. Thirty years ago when I was in seminary, no one ever heard of preterism. It wasn't discussed. It was a dead theology. And today it is coming back like gangbusters. And so you need to be prepared as believers to know how to listen with discernment to what you hear and what is taught and how to interact with people. And so that's part of the reason we will discuss those issues. Well, the first part of the book, the first chapter, the first chapter is a prologue. And this introduces us to the divine author, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the human author, who is John. The title is given in verse 1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice it is not the revelations of Jesus Christ. It is singular. You will often hear people state it as a plural, but it is a singular revelation. And notice it's not the revelation of the future. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. uh, This book, sometimes known as the Apocalypse, is written to unveil That's the word revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis, which means to unveil. It is the revealing 
of Jesus Christ. It is the it is the revelation of His second coming, His appearance to the earth as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to establish His kingdom. So this book is about His revelation at the second coming and all of the events and circumstances surrounding it. So the prologue introduces us to that. Now, why is it that we should study this book? First of all, because it encourages believers in the midst of opposition and persecution that God controls history. Second reason is that it challenges believers with the goal of the Christian life, not simply to find happiness and meaning in this life, not simply to grow to spiritual maturity, but that this life is indeed a preparation for a future rule and reign responsibility with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom. Therefore, this adds tremendous weight to the significance of your Christian life today. Third, it is to provide information for the tribulation believer so that they might persevere during those unimaginably dark days. And fourth, it provides us with a model for the worship of the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, the Lamb of God who will return in victory as the King of kings and Lord of lords to rule forever and ever. This revelation was given to uh, John, who is John the Apostle, as I've already said, and he was close to 90 years of age at the time that this uh, took place. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Sixty-seven times in this epistle we have a reference to angels out of 170, approximately 170 references in the entire New Testament. So there's angels are very important in this epistle, and angels seem to mediate revelation. Now that's important to understand here. Notice that Jesus Christ appears to John, but there are also angels associated with the giving of the inspiration, just as when the Mosaic Law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, there's no mention of angels in Exodus. But in the New Testament, in Hebrews, it talks about the fact that angels mediated the covenant to Moses. So angels are involved in the background. And you'll understand why I make that point in just a few minutes. So he, the Lord Jesus Christ signifies it by his angel to John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. And then we have a blessing for those who read, study, and heed, that is, apply the principles of the book in verse 3. And then there is a greeting from John, John the apostle to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then as we go through, we'll see the emphasis on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is emphasized numerous times. There's over uh, 25 ti- different titles for the Lord Jesus Christ in this, in this book. Verse 5 gives us a, a hint of some of them from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, emphasizing resurrection, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Over and again, we have an emphasis on Jesus as the one who died for our salvation. And verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. This is that long-term view. This is why we were saved, is for this future rule and reign responsibility with the Lord Jesus Christ in the future. Verse 7, Behold, He, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. That's a reference to the Jews, Zechariah 12:13, that they would look upon Him whom they pierced. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. He is the Alpha and Omega, more titles, the beginning and the end. He who is and who was and who is to come. So the focus here is on His return, His revelation, His appearance at the second coming. And at the beginning of this vision, John is given the commission to relay information, seven letters to seven churches. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ standing in the midst of seven lampstands in verse 13. He's there is pictured as the Son of Man, emphasis on His humanity. And His head and hair are white like wool, white as snow, and His eyes like a flame of fire. Again, this indicates a different view of the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't the Jesus of Nazareth that he walked with during the period of the incarnation, but he has a new appearance, and this 
appearance of being white indicates judgment and the exercise of judicial rule, which is what we see at the culmination of Revelation. Jesus returns, and he will judge mankind. And verse 16 tells us, In his right hand there were seven stars, and these seven stars represent these seven churches. Verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So who are these angels? Because each of these letters, when we get to the second division, each of these letters are addressed to these seven churches, to the angels of those churches. Now we'll have to study that, but some people think it means the pastor. Other people think it refers to a literal angel. I am beginning to think it refers to a literal angel because, as I said, the word angelos is used 67 times in Revelation and never once refers to a human being except for maybe these seven instances. But if we have angels mediating Revelation in many other places and passages in Scripture, then what we actually have here is an angel who is assigned to each church at this stage who is mediating inspired revelation to that church, which, of course, would go through the pastor. So even though the, the, so it also almost implies that both views are true. You have a literal angel, and the revelation is then mediated through the pastor-teacher of that local church. There are seven churches. These are all on the western shore of western province of uh, 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 what is now modern Turkey, what was then the Roman province of Asia. They are Ephesus. Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There is an attempt to lay these out as sort of a map of what happens in the church age, that each church represents the characteristic of a period of time in the church age. I do not think that is true. What these churches represent is trends and cycles of uh, behavior that will take place again and again in various churches throughout the church age. So each one has different characteristics. When we get here, what, one of the things that I will do is summarize the seven letters in terms of character qualities. Remember when you were a kid and you would get a report card? At least when I was a kid, we had report cards, and on one side of the report card we had the academic subjects. You had history and geography and arithmetic and reading and handwriting, and you received letter grades, um, for those particular subjects. And on the right-hand side, you had character qualities such as honesty and self-discipline and uh, patriotism, various different qualities. You received a check plus or minus in that column as to how you stacked up in that area. And I remember when I was a kid, my dad said, well, when you get a uh, plus, which is the highest you could get in self-discipline, then you can have my uh, one of my Marine Corps knives took me a while to get to that point. But that's the kind of thing we're going to do in these two chapters. We're not just going to study the seven letters to the seven churches, but we're going to stack up all the character qualities that are emphasized by the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you have to use that as a report card for each local church. These are the things the Lord is, is looking at. The first church was uh, the church at Ephesus, and there they are praised for a number of things because of their emphasis on truth, their emphasis on doctrine, but unfortunately there is a negative. They have lost their first love. This is characteristic of many churches. After they've been around a while, they become institutionalized. They go through the motions. They show up for Bible class three, four, five times a week and take notes and have stacks of doctrinal notebooks, but they have lost their first love. Doctrine in the life is no longer a priority. They just go through the motions. And then the second church is a persecuted church that has no negatives stated about it. It's the church at Smyrna. And there, there are only positive things, and they are encouraged because they are going through persecution. And they are promised that if they are faithful until death, in verse 10, I will give you the crown of life. The third church is the, third, the, the church in Pergamum, and this is a worldly church. It's a church characterized by compromise, and there is uh, much said that is negative, and they are challenged to repent, which means to change their thinking and to advance in their spiritual life. And they are promised that if they overcome 
Then they will receive reward in terms of hidden manna to eat, a white stone and a stone with a new name written on it. So we'll have to spend some time uh, figuring out what that refers to. Then the fourth church is a another corrupt church. There are some negative things said about it in the church of Thyatira. And again, they have compromised. They have allowed false teaching to come in and an emphasis on on false prophecy, and they have been seduced by false doctrine, uh, which involved also sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols in verse 20. And they are challenged to also to to repent, that is to uh, change their thinking about uh, truth and to change their thinking in relation to application. They are warned that to, they are challenged to hold fast until Jesus comes and promise that those who overcome and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations and give him the uh, order of the morning star, verse 28. Then the fifth church, again, is all negative, And there is nothing positive said about the church in Sardis. They have compromised with doctrine. They have lost their first love. They, have be, uh, they are challenged to repent because soon the Lord will return and they need to be prepared for the future. And then the final, then, then the, uh, or the, excuse me, the sixth church is the church in Philadelphia. Nothing negative is said about the church of Philadelphia. They are positive and they too are promised that if they overcome, then there will be various rewards. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, verse 12, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So they have a special blessing for their obedience. Then we come to the seventh and last church, which is the church of the Laodiceans, who are lukewarm. And lukewarm means they become useless because they uh, go through the motions, they have church, but there's no reality of doctrine in their life. They are challenged to repent and to let the Lord become part of their operation. This is a call to fellowship in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Lord Jesus Christ wants to be involved in the local church, not excluded. It is not talking about salvation. Revelation 3.20 is not a salvation verse. It's addressed to a church of believers who have excluded him in terms of fellowship. So Revelation 2 and 3 covers the seven letters, the seven churches. There is a pattern, though, a cycle there that is demonstrated in these letters, and that is that there's a continual growth or decline. Uh, There's a continual decline, and there is increasing apostasy as you move through these seven letters. And this characterizes different stages of degeneracy and our positive growth in churches throughout the church age. Now, starting in chapter 4, we get to our prophecy section. Chapters 4 through 22 all deal with prophecy. So we have to have an overview of God's prophetic plan. We live in the church age. The church age is a distinct age marked by a distinct ministry of God the Holy Spirit. The church is different from Israel. Uh, God has made promises, as we'll study, to, to the Jews. Those were literal promises given in unconditional covenants, such as the Abrahamic covenant, the uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. These promises will be literally fulfilled to Israel in the future. But God has temporarily set aside the Jews, and now he is working through the church, which is composed of both uh, Jewish believers and Gentile believers, but your ethnic background and relationship to Israel is not relevant. Therefore, in the church, there's neither Jew nor Greek, the Apostle Paul says. So the church age is a unique age where God is preparing his, the bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, those who die during the church age who are unbelievers go to a temporary uh, place of torments in Hades. Uh, those who die as, as Believers are absent from the body face to face with the Lord and they receive their resurrection body at the rapture of the church. The church age ends with the rapture when Jesus Christ returns for his bride in the clouds. Following the rapture of the church, there will be a period on the earth of unprecedented horror. There will be events like September 11th happening everywhere all over the earth 
day in and day out. And we will see the description as we go through the Revelation 4 through 19. It's a period that lasts seven years. It's divided into two sections, uh, the first period of three and a half years and the second period of three and a half years. This first period is relatively uh, calm compared to the last period, which is called the time when the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. In heaven, I don't know what happened to that. In heaven... We have the judgment seat of Christ. In the judgment seat of Christ, all believers are evaluated where we are prepared for our ruling and rating responsibilities in heaven, and then we become the bride of Christ. That's what that should say. Everything was fine when I looked at this this morning. The bride of Christ, and there is the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we will return with the Lord. The church is the bride of Christ. We will return with the Lord at the second coming. There will be a judgment at the end of the tribulation when those who are uh, believers, tribulation saints will receive their resurrection, or tribulation saints that martyred receive their resurrection bodies. Tribulation saints that survive will go into the millennial kingdom. Uh, Those who are unbelievers at the end of the tribulation will be judged, and they will be uh, sent to uh, Hades. The Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes His 1,000-year kingdom, known as the millennium, and that ends with another judgment, the great white throne judgment, where all unbelievers are sentenced to the lake of fire. Then the present heavens and present earth are burned up and destroyed, and a new heavens and new earth are created, and that is described in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So this gives us our prophetic uh, panorama. The the period covered from Revelation 4 through 22 is the period from the beginning of the tribulation to the uh, new heavens and the new earth. Now, as we go through this section, you have to be aware of a change of scenery. Otherwise, you'll get confused. And this chart simply shows the back and forth movement of the Apostle John. He begins in chapters uh, 4 and 5 with a look of what is taking place in heaven at the beginning of the tribulation. Then in chapter 6, the focus shifts to what's happening on the earth. Then in chapter 7, you're back to heaven again. Chapters 8 and 9, you're back on the earth. Chapter 10, you're in heaven. Chapters 11, 1 through 14 are on the earth. 11, 15, you shift back to heaven. And and that from 11, 15 to 12, 12, you're in heaven. Then from 12.13 to 14, you're back on the earth. Chapter 15, you're in heaven. Chapter 16 through 18, you're describing the fall of Babylon, the uh, great kingdom of Satan that he's established under the Antichrist during the tribulation. Chapter 16 through 18, the 19, 1 through 16, we're in heaven. And then the Lord comes forth from heaven with his armies, and which we will be part of. And we return to the earth in 1917. And to the end of uh, chapter 20, the focus is on the present earth. So you have to look at the scene and ask yourself, where are we? What is John describing? The other thing that goes on is that John will start off with an overview, and then he comes back after a chapter or two chapters and starts to deal with specific details that he's already covered in terms of the overview. So you have to be aware of this shift um, back and forth. The scene begins in chapter 4. After these things, that is, after the church age 4, 1, and 2, actually describes, in my opinion, the rapture of the church. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And John sees this door, and he hears a voice like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And this is uh, like tantamount to the rapture of the church. Immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit, whether this means he was having a trance and he was seeing these things in a vision, or whether it means literally he was taken by the Spirit into heaven, we're not sure. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So he is taken into the throne of God. Revelation 4 focuses on the worship of God the Father. Revelation 5 focuses on the worship of God the Son, the Lamb. And in chapter, uh, 
chapter 4, we have the third great subject. The first was the prologue in chapter 1. The second is the um, message to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 4, we have the third section. This is the problem. There's a great conflict. There's a tremendous tension in heaven that John is becomes aware of. He comes before the throne of God. He describes the throne of God in all of its magnificence. And starting in verse 3, he describes those who surround the throne, beginning in verse 4, the uh, 24 thrones and the 24 elders, and we'll have to identify who they are. There are different positions. I think these are all different categories of angels sitting around the throne of God and worshiping Him. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. This is the energy center of the universe. And this is the command central, God the Father on His throne, and before Him are the seven spirits of God. These are mentioned again in chapter 5, verse 6, the seven spirits of God. And we'll have to study who and what that refers to. And before the throne of God, there's a sea of glass, and this shows the isolation of God the Father, that you have all of these creatures out before Him, and you have this magnificent throne room scene. And He describes the these creatures, and they're described in the same terms as the burning ones, that is, the seraphs of Isaiah chapter chapter 6. But there's a problem, and the problem is that they come forth with this scroll, and this is given in verse 1. The scroll is written inside on, on the back is written inside on the back, and it's got which means it's written on the inside and outside. Now, if you were to take a, a piece of paper and roll it up, if I take a piece of my notes here, if I were to roll it up, there would only be writing on the inside. There would be no writing on the outside. But the scroll here is a legal document. It's the title deed to the earth. It is the title deed for the kingdom of the earth. And in a scroll in the ancient world, if you rolled it up, the writing on the inside would not be observable. So that would be private correspondence. The writing on the outside would be public correspondence that anyone could read. And then it would be sealed. And on this title deed described in Revelation 5, there are seven seals along the scroll. And the question here is, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And all of the heavenly host are confused, are, are concerned and distraught because no one is found who is worthy. And they're so distraught that John catches this. And in verse for he begins to weep much. He just breaks down. He is, he is crying intensely. The Greek is very strong here. He is weeping, and one of the elders comes to him and says, Stop it. Stop weeping. There's no reason. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. So the shift is now to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, pictured as the lion of God, but when he appears in verse 6, we see a different image. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Now, what was in the midst of the throne earlier, of these creatures earlier? It was the throne of God the Father. So what we see here is a picture of the Lamb of God in his deity at the, at the throne of heaven and this is an emphasis in chapter 5 on the deity of Jesus Christ and at that point he comes forward and he takes the scroll and all of the heavenly hosts break forth into praise verse 9 you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth this is similar to what they sang in praise to God the Father in 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And this shows us that according to Revelation 5, that the Lord Jesus Christ is viewed as being fully God. As we've studied in our series on who is Jesus, the deity of Christ wasn't some invention in the 3rd or 4th century by later Christians, but it is clear from the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ is viewed as God and they worship Him as God in chapter 5, just as they worship God the Father in chapter 4. The process of judgment then begins in chapter 5. Chapter five, before we go there, the, 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 the lamb is considered worthy, according to verse 12, 
And seven things are said about him. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Seven things are said about him. The focus in Revelation is on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not on the details of judgment. It is on his glory and the fact that he is worthy to receive honor and glory and blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 13. And then in chapter 6, we get into the cycles of judgment. Now, if you want to understand Revelation, it's very simple at this point. There's three series of divine judgments. The first series are called the seal judgments, those seven seals on that, on that scroll that the Lamb takes. And with the breaking of each seal, you have another series of divine judgments. When you come to the seventh seal, the seventh seal contains the next series of judgments, which are the seven trumpet judgments. And you go through the seven trumpet judgments, and when you get to the seventh trumpet judgment, it is opened, and it contains seven bowl judgments. So this is the the cycle of judgments, seven seal judgments. The seventh contains the seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments that are poured out upon the earth, bringing great catastrophe to those who have rebelled against God. Now remember, church-age believers are not present. We have been raptured, uh, and we will see what happens after, after the rapture. So chapter 6 and 7, focus now on what is taking place on, on the earth, or chapter 6 focuses on the earth. 4 and 5 focused on the scene in heaven. Chapter 6 focuses on the earth, and we have the seven seal judgments. The first seal judgment, uh, and all of these take place in the first half of the tribulation, the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the ashen horse. These are the four horses of the apocalypse, the first four judgments, and then there are three following that. These occur in the first half of the tribulation. These are the seal judgments. The first seal judgment is the white horse uh, judgment. The color of these horses come from the Old Testament. If you want, you recognize that the new te- or that, that Revelation is filled with symbols. It's filled with imagery. But you can't just guess at what those images stand for. You have to study the Old Testament. These images all are rooted in the Old Testament. For example, the color of these horses, and these horses are rooted in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 3 and following. The first seal judgment is a rider who goes out to conquer, conquering and to conquer. This is the Antichrist as he goes forth to conquer. The second seal judgment is when peace is taken uh, from the earth and there is war and a tremendous number of people are killed in this warfare and a great sword, which symbolizes the power of death, is given to the Antichrist. And then in the third seal, there is, as a result of this war, tremendous uh, famine on the earth, so that a quart of, uh, uh, of wheat is sold for a denarius, and a three quarts of barley for a denarius. And, and this, in, in essence, this is a, de- a full day's wage, probably 150 or $200 for a loaf of bread. And then the fourth seal, there is widespread death upon the earth. And here we learn that a quarter of the earth's population is killed at this fourth seal judgment. So if we have a population on the earth today of six billion, that means that in this early stage, one and a half billion people lose their life and are taken from the, from the earth. Then the fifth seal involves martyrdom. And these are those who trust Christ after after the tribulation begins, and they are uh, executed for their faith in Christ. And there are many thousands of believers who will be executed for their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. I believe that there will be millions and millions of people who are saved during the tribulation, but there will be hundreds of thousands perhaps that are martyred for their faith. The sixth seal judgment involves geophysical disturbances. There's earthquakes. The sun becomes as black as sackcloth and moon like the blood. 
And people debate whether or not this means that the sun and the moon actually changed their color or this is just indicative of tremendous uh, pollution on the earth as a result of all of this warfare. Uh, There are stars that fall to earth. The sky is split like a scroll. Mountains and islands move out of their place. And the earth is shaking. There are massive earthquakes as a result of these uh, divine catastrophes and, of course, even even more are killed. And we're told in 6.17 that uh, people are so afraid that they cry to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So this is the wrath of the Lamb. This is one reason why the church isn't there. The church is the bride of Christ. See, you don't take your bride and get engaged and then take her and beat her up and uh, take her through the torture chamber and then say, okay, honey, now that we've uh, gone through all of this abuse, let's go to the uh, bridal supper and get married. See, the imagery doesn't fit. This is the wrath of the Lamb upon the earth for their Uh, disobedience and rejection of his saving work. And then in chapter 7, we have a scene on the earth. And this is a scene where 144,000 Jews are saved. This takes place at the beginning of the tribulation. See, 4 and 5 is a broad picture in heaven. Chapter 6 describes events in the first three and a half years. And then chapter 7 takes us back to the beginning of this period of time. And these... uh, Uh, 144,000 Jews are saved. Then in chapter 8, we have the prelude to the seventh seal. When the seventh seal is opened, there's silence in heaven for about an hour. The angels are in awe of what is about to take place. They have never seen such horrendous judgments. So we have the trumpet judgments where there is hail and fire upon the earth. And these trumpet judgments, a third, they, they affect the earth by thirds so that a third of the vegetation is destroyed in the first trumpet judgment. A third of the sea creatures die in the second trumpet judgment. A third of the uh, fresh waters are destroyed and become bitter in the third trumpet judgment. In the fourth trumpet judgment, the heavens are affected. A, a third of the sun is, is struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that it becomes darker on the face of the earth. And then in chapter 9, we see that there is a tremendous uh, devastation, demonic devastation that takes place. The, a star falls from heaven. It's given the key to the bottomless pit where there is a demonic army that has been uh, imprisoned, and they are released, and they look like bugs, and they act like demons, and people debate what, what they are, but I believe it's a demonic army, and they wreak havoc upon the earth. The sting of these demons on men brings tremendous torment, physical pain and sickness, but they can't die, and they beg to, to die and to have their life taken. And we're told that the ruler of these demons is named in Hebrew is Abaddon. In the Greek is Apollyon. It means destruction. Whatever is going on there, we don't want to be there. It is a time of unprecedented horror. Then the sixth trumpet, a third of mankind is killed. A quarter of mankind was killed first. Now a third of mankind is killed. That means half the earth's population by this point is gone. And then there is a, uh, the release of an army. I think this is a demonic army of 200 million in, uh that is associated with this sixth trumpet that comes across the Euphrates. Then we skip ahead, and in chapter 12 and 13, we have a scorecard, a playbill. Who are the characters that are uh, that characterize the tribulation? If you look at this, you understand who they are. There are seven key people during the period of the tribulation. First of all, there's the woman who gives birth to the man-child. Obviously, the man-child, the male child is said as he who is to rule all nations with an rod of iron, a reference to Psalm 2, 9. So the child is the Lord Jesus Christ. The woman, therefore, must be Israel. The woman is Israel. This is a debate because... um, Most commentators want the woman to be the church. That puts the church in the tribulation. But if the woman is Israel, gives birth to the man-child, then the woman is not the church. The dragon is the enemy of the woman. This is the defined in verse 3, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, seven uh, seven diadems on his head. This is Satan. 
The male child is the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 7 and 8, we have the angelic warfare between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels. And they persecute the woman and her offspring. Her offspring are the Jews. This is Satan's great goal in the tribulation is to destroy Israel, to wipe out every Jew before God can fulfill his promise, his literal promises to the Jews. This is why anti-Semitism is so wrong and why anybody who takes their stand against Israel is wrong. This is part of what's going on in the Arab-Israeli conflict and the rise of, of radical Islam today is under, undergirding all of this as a hostility to Israel. The last two uh, key people are described in chapter 13. We have the first beast who comes out of the sea. This is the Antichrist, followed by the second beast who comes out of the earth, the false prophet who causes people to worship the beast and to put a mark upon their hand by which they can buy and sell. And it applies to the whole world. So that we read in Revelation 13, 16, and 17, he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor, and the freemen and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy and sell except the one who has the mark. The mark is related to the worship of the beast, so that if anyone worships the beast in Revelation 14:9 and 11, worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead, you don't just get this mark by chance. It is related to worship of the beast. And then we have the bold judgments, and the bold judgments are described in chapter 16. And these are, this is the final stage of the tribulation where there are boils brought upon every person that's left upon the earth. Second bold judgment, the sea turns to blood. In the third bold judgment, the, wa- the fresh waters turn to blood so that the water source on the earth is destroyed. In the fourth bold judgment, because the, the heat from the sun and atmospheric problems, now people are burned up, from, are burned on the earth, scorched by fire. From the sun, there. This leads to the fifth bold judgment, which brings uh, darkness upon the earth, and people gnaw their tongues because of the pain brought on by this bold judgment. The sixth bold judgment: the Euphrates River dries up, so that an army from the east can come and attack Israel. And this leads to the final battle, the campaign of Armageddon. This is a picture of Armageddon, a great field, Har-Megiddo in the Greek, which is the uh, mountain of Megiddo. It's also the Valley of Esdralon, about which Napoleon said all the armies of the earth can gather for a great battle. In chapters 17 and 18, we have a description of the uh, character of this final kingdom as Mystery Babylon the Great. And there is debate as to whether this is an idealized view and this represents uh, the, the character of the, uh, of the revived Roman Empire or if Babylon will be literally uh, brought back. There are many who believe that, and I'm still studying the issue, and we will uh, see where we get when we get to that point. In chapter 19, the Lord comes back. At the first part of the chapter, we have the view in heaven where there is praise, and finally the Lord is going to come back and, uh, at, and destroy the evil, destroy the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. And he comes forth from heaven, and in chapter 19:11, the apostle says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And with him comes an army, verse 14, And the armies in heaven clothed in white, fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. That's us. We are that, with that army. We become purified at the rapture. We receive our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and we are prepared to rule and reign with Him. Your preparation comes now. It's how we live our life today. And then Jesus returns. He throws the Antichrist, the false prophet, into the lake of fire. And starting in chapter 20, Satan is bound. He is, take, he is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and God, our Jesus Christ, establishes his kingdom on the earth for that 1,000 years. Satan is released for a brief period of time at the end of the, of the millennial kingdom where he leads a revolt against God. God destroys him at that point through uh, fire and brimstone. His armies are wiped out. There's no great battle. And then there is the great white throne judgment. All of the earth... The heavens and the earth, the present heavens and the earth are then burned up, according to Second Peter chapter 3, and we have a new heaven and a new earth in 21.1. These are described 
as a period where there's no, there's no need of a sun because of the brilliance of the glory of God. There's no darkness. There's no temple because God the Father and God the Son are present. And there is the river of life. This, there is the new Jerusalem on the earth. And this is the beginning of eternity. The millennial kingdom just sort of segues into the eternal kingdom. And then we come to a final uh, blessing and warning in chapter in uh, chapter 22, verses 18 to 21. And the final warning is that Jesus says, "Behold, I come quickly. I will come soon." As these events begin to unfold, they will happen very quickly. And the warning to us is to be ready. See, it's an evangelistic message. Be ready in terms of salvation, and it's a message in terms of our Christian life. Be ready because now is your training time to be prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is our run through Revelation, and we will begin the details next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that if there's anyone here that's not sure of their salvation or unsure of their eternal destiny, they would make that sure and certain right now. Salvation is secured by your faith alone in Christ alone. You do not need to do anything. You do not need to join a church. It's not part of ritual. It's not part of works. It's part of simply trusting in Jesus Christ. That's all you do is believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal salvation. At this instant, you have that opportunity to secure your eternal destiny. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study today and give, give us a greater appreciation of where we are headed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.